Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Welcome. My name is Anjali Nathupadia. I'm academically trained as a political scientist, a philosopher, and a professor. I've been teaching at the intersection of political science and women's studies at universities and in community for 16 years now, just as a little bit of background for folks who might not know me. Thank you for listening. Feel free to grab a notebook and a pen. Also, if relevant, please don't feed any trolls. So to begin to dive into it, just to give a little bit of background context, perceiving with clarity is the work of a lifetime. It's not like this is something that can be comprehensively addressed in any one series. Furthermore, it's got to be breathed, lived, sensed in a way that no video or series in isolation can allow. Yet there are so many consistent patterns I've observed over a lifetime of study of colonial traps. And those are what I want to share with you in this series. So... I can certainly attest to that my family and friends and myself have been so harmed by the colonial poisoning of our perception, as has the world as a whole. We're currently experiencing crises of knowledge, the so-called information age, having folks less wise than we've ever been disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, and half-truths are super common these days. Folks thinking that so-called fake news is new, that last one might be hilarious if it wasn't so deadly. More specifically, we're experiencing a perceptual crisis right now. It's in this context that it's more important than ever for folks to perceive with clarity, like our lives depend on it. Indeed, they do. As do the lives of countless other species and our future generations. And not just to perceive with clarity. I want folks to respect what we know, period, full stop, because truth is incredibly important. Indeed, honesty can be a devotional practice because then we can act accordingly, which would help us get free. And I especially want everyday folks that are interested in decolonization, who sometimes doubt what we think we know, to take this invitation seriously. All too many of us doubt what we know. And to be clear, I'm not talking about healthy skepticism here. That's great, and more on that later. I'm wondering if this sounds familiar to any of y'all. In a time in which we so desperately need to acknowledge what we know, what gifts come from our instinct, our intuition, emotional intelligence, so to speak, embodied awareness, instead of having those gifts belittled or diminished by gaslighting. 
it's so vital in this moment in history for us to really have some respect for what we're picking up on. Unfortunately, this problem of self-doubt has also been technologically amplified. Us doubting what we know enables our conformity to modes of perception that were never intended to benefit us. Now, hang on a minute, you might say. This all makes sense. But what about brainwashing? My mind might be full of commercialized messages, dogma, ideology, and heaps of other storytelling that got implanted by my upbringing, or schooling, or socialization, or other just broader aspects of our enculturation. And let's be real, sometimes our memory might fail us also. And there's a lot that we might not know. Why would we ever trust all of that? It's a great question. Most of our minds have been astoundingly colonized, and it's important to be humble in the face of the cleanup job that that requires. We have massive decolonial exorcisms to engage in order to recalibrate our awareness if we're going to survive. Out with the Orwellian deception and in with the kind of consciousness raising that survival moving forward will invariably require. How did we get hustled out of trusting ourselves to begin with? To answer that question, we've got to venture into that realm of philosophy called epistemology. You can see this series, in part, as a sort of people's guide to epistemology. I'll teach you all a little about epistemology to help us understand how we got hustled out of trusting ourselves. I'll also share a few experiments, exercises, and activities to get us warmed up into these areas and back into the rhythm of trusting ourselves and what we know. Shedding that gaslighting and propaganda so we can sense into what'll help us get free. This is especially important because the colonization of our minds fuels white terrorism, colonialism, and other deadly systems of oppression. Of course, when the core curriculum in mainstream educational institutions is still embarrassingly whitewashed and inaccurate, millions of students will be miseducated in myriad ways. For example, to think that European civilizations are more impressive than they actually are or were, and that all of the rest of the planet's people are less impressive than we actually are. The disinformation via those kinds of curricular biases is far-reaching. This is some of what's at stake in the need to do this urgent task at hand. That task being pulling weeds and planting seeds, which is the paradigm many of y'all know we use in our pedagogy at Liberation Spring. So to back up and give a little bit of personal context, when we'd garden, when I was a kid, my mother taught me to pull weeds and plant seeds. I apply that ecological method to teaching. When we begin by unlearning or pulling weeds, we're less likely to perpetuate aspects of the oppressive status quo in our work and in our lives. Rather, we'll have increased capacity for our work to be liberatory when we've cleared the metaphorical soil of weeds that would otherwise rob our creative seeds of vital nourishment, water, sunlight, etc. We critically identify elements of our unjust socialization that are unintentionally expressed in transformative spaces or in our efforts to create solutions. Then we can uproot these poisons and make room for more medicinal interventions. That kind of strategic and intentional leveraging of our limited time, our limited energy and resources is absolutely of the essence in a moment of so many intersecting crises, whether it's socially, politically, economically, ecologically, Frankly, there's not a moment, a dollar, or an initiative to waste on false starts or on business as usual anymore. So that leads me to the question, how's your weed and seed identification? 
How about also sharing one idea related to how to engage this material before we dive right into this week's seed, that being critical media literacy? And it's got to do with me wanting to encourage y'all to talk with people about the material in this series that we're about to be diving into and what comes up for y'all around this. Why? One, because it's deep and dialogue can improve retention. It can also be useful in bringing folks along with you in your consciousness raising journey. That way you're not growing in isolation apart from your communities. You can encourage them to learn and unlearn alongside us. Figuring out how on earth to talk about these topics using a language that feels authentic can seriously benefit our comprehension of these ideas. I invite you to try it out. I know it can sometimes feel scary or edgy or intimidating. However, practice can right, allow that process to become a little bit easier for us. So if it feels aligned, how about sharing some of what is coming up for you? Indeed, it can also be helpful in getting clear on what your responses are to this material also. I encourage you to jot down any ideas, questions, feelings, and responses that you may have as you're going through this series. You can see that archive as a gift to your future self so that you can look back on this one snapshot of your consciousness. How amazing. It's incredible what we're capable of, especially when we're open to learning, unlearning, and observing. So without further ado, how about we get into this week's seed, that of critical media literacy. I'd love to see in the chat how many of y'all are familiar with that term. Have any of you heard of that before? Just to give a little bit of background context, especially for folks for whom this might be new. So critical media literacy is one option among many that are really worth our considering here. And I'd like to put it in a little bit of context before we dive in. So just to begin to share, uh, Right, we've got the corporate media that we talked about, right, as a weed to pull on Wednesday. And if you ask me, right, critical media literacy is essentially for our loved ones who are still in the matrix, so to speak, right, or in Plato's cave, right, they're in the belly of the beast or the heart of Babylon. They haven't taken the red pill, so to speak, right? They might still be super explicitly swirling in illusions in lies, in distortions, in disinformation campaigns, in psychological warfare, even more than the rest of us. Since they might not have even substantially named those as problems yet, right, then they definitely might not have necessarily substantially contended with what solutions might be warranted in the face of how horrifying that fuckery is they might not have even had explicit boundaries for navigating any or much or most of that poison, right? So people often talk about literacy in the context of, say, mainstream literacy campaigns, like inviting people to learn how to read a book or a piece of literature. So critical media literacy is, right, applying that take on literacy, but in the realm of especially corporate media, I'd say even independent media. So instead of, say, just in a language arts class, right, perhaps in K through 12 education, right, being taught how to read, right, some book from centuries ago, but then not being taught how to be literate in all of the media that we're swirling in today, this practice that's called critical media literacy supports our thinking critically about, say, the corporate media. So being able to apply some substantial discernment when people are still consuming that mainstream poison. So I bring that in, in part because, right, critical media literacy is one skill set that we can build, but I want to invite us to situate it 
within a bigger picture where we've got other options also. So again, for our loved ones that are just kind of swirling in the illusions, this is a skill set that could be game changing to support them parsing out what on earth is going on amidst all those lies. However, we don't have to just be swirling in illusions, right? So we could talk about critical media literacy, but it's also important for me to name the importance of independent media, right? Media that's not just being paid for and curated by companies that are trying to make money. And then also, what's the third option? So one, we've got critical media literacy if folks are still just consuming poison, at least to learn to be literate about what the poison is they're consuming and how it's poison. But then two, right, getting out of the matrix, so to speak, a little bit, we could actually be consuming legit sources. <laughs> and then the third option is, right, DIY, do-it-yourself, right, people actually being media makers themselves, which I know most people aren't necessarily going to do, but a lot of people do actually engage in. Whether that is called, right, one mainstream sort of search term is citizen journalism, right? So you can use that search term, right? If you want to get linked up to projects that do that kind of DIY work. I'm personally not into that language of citizenship. It's super exclusionary and nationalist, but you can understand where people might be coming from when they use that term. We could use other terms though. Um, so when we talk about critical media literacy, again, how about we situate it within that bigger picture, right? Uh, and so that being said, once folks are a little more discerning, they might understand the point of, shall we say, graduating to independent media or possibly even, again, contributing to independent media also. Um, so again, critical media literacy is for us if we're still being actively poisoned, so to speak, right? So it's almost as if you're right downing activated charcoal, right, or doing some kind of cleanse, but then, right, chasing it with shots of moonshine. So it's still within a context of us being, right, sort of swept up in disinformation or corporate bias, but at minimum, it gives us some sort of defensive strategy to be able to discern within those super problematic spaces. Um, and one, right, thing to consider as we're really taking seriously, right, what critical media literacy might help us think through is even the formatting, right, of corporate media. Are any of y'all familiar with this term of sound bites? I'd love to see if any of y'all have heard of that before. So for example, maybe on average interviewers only being able to speak in say, seven second increments before they get interrupted. I bring that in here because that's not just some kind of, right, neutral structure by any stretch of the imagination, right? That's actually been analyzed very carefully by media scholars, and it's been determined to, in part, right, only really even make space to just confirm people's existing mainstream biases. Um, and a huge shout out, right, to the early 1990s, magnificently dated documentary, Manufacturing Consent, right, based off of the book of the same time by Professor Noam Chomsky for even as early as the early 1990s, really outlining some of the political and intellectual consequences of people just normalizing that soundbite mentality, right? So that's almost akin to, if any of y'all are familiar with, right, one of Lauren Hill's lyrics uh, on her Unplugged album, right, about so many people's philosophies being paper thin. It's almost as if you constructed a worldview based off of memes, right? It's like, that's what's structurally enabled if there's not even space to be able to engage in depth, right? Or a substantial conversation. Uh, and so something else for us to consider there is, right, a great deal of folks that have been supporting us being able to perceive with that kind of clarity. So on that front, I would like to actually share a few resources with y'all. Um, so the first one that I want to share is called FAIR, 
right? And that acronym stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. So if you haven't heard of it and you look at my screen here, you can see I just pulled up a screenshot of this award-winning organization. Um, it's a national media watchdog group, right? And so they offer documented criticism of media bias and of censorship, and they've been doing that for decades. So you can see here, right, they look to essentially what the specific forms of censorship are, right, the kinds of silences and omissions that just get super normalized or naturalized within the corporate media. And they've got a resource that I'd like to invite your attention to that's called Counterspin. It's a news show. It's also available in podcast form um, that every single week looks at some of the major stories from the previous week and then actually breaks down for us did you see how the corporate media wasn't asking this question and they weren't talking about this question, right? Or considering what are the perspectives that were just given airtime? Like in talking about evictions, were only landlords being interviewed, but not tenants? What does that mean in terms of the kind of ideas that might have been promoted, right? And inviting us to really take seriously some of those missions. So like you can see here, right, highlighting censored stories and exposing biases and inaccuracies within corporate coverage. For example, examining the power of corporate influence, right, and the role that structural sexism, racism, homophobia, and other forms of oppression play in the way that stories get curated within the corporate media, right? So I really invite y'all to check out this show if you don't listen to it already. Even say maybe just for a month to begin to get a sense of what some of the kind of critique is that they share in their interpretation of critical media literacy. Um, and there's another, right, major player, right, within this field that I would like to draw your attention to called the MEF, or the Media Education Foundation. And this is an organization of educators that specifically do work in the field of critical media literacy. So you can see here, right, they produce and distribute documentary films and other education inspiring critical thinking about the social, political, and cultural impact of mass media within the settler colonial U.S. Um, so if you want to take a moment to write down the names of these organizations and projects, I sincerely encourage you to do so so that you can check them out later. And I'll share one more at the moment, and then we can talk about critiques of some of them, because these folks have got their biases, and that's important for us to be truthful about also. Um, and it's the website, or I'm sorry, the podcast citations needed. You can see here in their description, right, they say that they're a podcast about the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. Uh, and so they also, on a weekly basis, right, as sort of community-based or independent media scholars will not just share their own perspectives, right, or a different opinion, but they actually model for us that critical media literacy by breaking down what the biases are that millions of our loved ones are being subjected to if they're being exposed to corporate media. Uh, and so just wanting to put that out there also in case y'all might not be familiar with, right, some of these massively, right, uh, substantial critical media literacy sources. Um, and now it's really important for me that we actually talk about uh, some critiques of some of these sort of classically progressive or leftist approaches to critical media literacy. 
And one of the reasons why, if you ask me, it's so important for us to get into some of that um, is actually encapsulated in an excellent question that I received. Um, so let me pull this up real quick. Um, so Bex, who uses they, them pronouns, asks, I'd love to know if you think there's any value in critiquing corporate news sources or media. And if so, what steps a critic could take to stay sharp in the face of propaganda? So again, is there any value in critiquing corporate news media? If you ask me, absolutely. Um, and here's why, right? Because that's actually the sort of loudest voice within the mainstream culture, unfortunately. And so to give another example, right? So often when people talk about some horrifically problematic system, for example, the surveillance state, some people's response might be, and let me know if you've heard of this before, like, oh, I'm just going to right, flee to the forest and create a commune and just totally drop out or check out, so to speak, of the mainstream system, right? Big Brother is terrifying. I'm over it. I'm out of here. And many, right, LS participants have heard me respond before to that. You can bail and forget about Big Brother, but I promise Big Brother has not forgotten about you, right? And of course, we can also ask who even has the privilege to be able to check out like that. So you see how that actually, right, just checking out of and not engaging problematic, right, mainstream institutions, right, or we could say hegemonic institutions to be a little bit more specific is just leaving that work, right, for other people to have to deal with, right? It could be seen in a lot of instances, frankly, as a form of negligence, if you ask me. I know many of y'all have heard me use the term political negligence before. It's like, that's stressful and problematic. I'm not going to deal with it. I hope somebody else does, right? It's not actually addressing the problem. It's not actually seeking a solution. And then that actually makes things harder for the rest of us that are actually then left with less support or less comrades, right, or accomplices to handle the problem. Uh, and so I bring that in here because I'll bet some of y'all might have noticed that many of our loved ones that have sufficient discernment to be horrified by the corporate media will just tune out. But the thing is, you know what that can enable? The kind of situation that we're in right now that is astoundingly dangerous in part because millions of people have been substantially influenced by the kinds of lies, right, and biases, unapologetically fascistic quite often, that are perpetuated within the corporate media. And that's not actually meaningfully being refuted or contended with or engaged within in so many of our communities. So again, to respond to Bex's first question, a hundred percent, it's incredibly important, right, for folks to be dealing with the most, right, widely publicized lies within the broader, right, mainstream colonial culture. However, it is important for me to name that's not everybody's work to do. So it's not like all of us need to be doing all of that all of the time. So taking it back to what we were talking about earlier, there's definitely also something to be said for, right, some people just telling the truth, right? Or if you ask me within, right, a more self determined perspective or from a more autonomous position telling our stories as is authentic to us as opposed to just constantly having to respond to right or react to dominant lies because that is right as important as it is it's also important to name that that is a reactionary position or it is a sort of defensive position consistently have to deal dealing with this sort of onslaught of lies and propaganda so I really invite us to consider, right, critical media literacy and responding to those corporate lies within that bigger picture of it being vital work 
for some people to do some of the time, but not for all of us to do, and certainly not all of the time, because there are other important projects for us to be considering as well. Um, and so on that front, I know that, so in addition to some of those resources I was just sharing, like the Media Education Foundation and dozens of their documentaries, right, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting and their podcast Counterspin and Citations Needed, um, it's also important for us to talk about a bit of a critique of democracy now. Um, so even though I've listened to their show, right, almost every show, more or less for almost 20 years now, I have substantial critiques of the show. Um, I'm definitely taking it like all of these resources, not even just with a grain of salt, with a bag of salt. So how about, again, in terms of that engagement, like really breaking down what's potentially problematic, we get into a little bit of that, right? So I would actually like for us to listen to a little bit of an excerpt of one of their shows from last month, so from September 10th, 2020, when they're interviewing Professor Harriet Washington, who is the author of the book Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. And I want to bring in this clip so then we can begin to talk through some of the things that I would especially like to invite our attention to in terms of, say, a critique of democracy now and some of these other progressive and leftist sources. So in this particular clip, just to give you a little bit of context, they're talking about, right, um, President Trump's administration's, right, Operation Warp Speed, which is trying to push out, right, a COVID-19 vaccine within the next month prior to the settler colonial presidential election, um, and how many people are concerned for a variety of reasons, especially about, right, the safety of a vaccine that's actually being rushed within the context of a project that's called Warped Speed. Uh, and so the host, one of the hosts, Amy Goodman, asked a question specifically about communities of color being, right, skeptical of this vaccine and using this language of being so-called anti-vax. And here is a little bit of the response that Professor Harriet Washington shared. So if y'all are able to listen to this brief clip, it's at the very end of the show. So unfortunately, we're only able to hear um, just a brief little excerpt, but let's see how think, she begins um, to respond. I think it's really important in terms of domestic issues, and that is that we are framing this conversation erroneously. We're talking about the need to recruit more and more people of color. The figures given by Dr. Fauci, 27%, um, African-Americans represent 13.3% of people in the country. So Fauci is suggesting that twice our, our representation should be rep being these vaccine trials. Why? Unfortunately, this is a subtle form of blaming the victim by hanging the um, success of vaccine design on African-Americans and Hispanic people. Um, that we're imparting responsibility that is not fair because in reality, um, their fear, their reticence to engage in vaccine design is not the problem. The problem is the untrustworthiness of the health, U.S. healthcare system. We have to address both things. We can't just talk about African-American and Hispanic um, behavior and not talk about a healthcare system that would, is creating a situation where logical people have a rational fear. We have to leave it there. I... So... Hopefully y'all were able to hear that okay. There's a lot that really merits unpacking there. So again, and if you're not familiar with this, right, incredible award-winning research text that is called Medical Apartheid, I would like to sincerely encourage you to check that book out. 
One of the things that Professor Harriet Washington is right revealing within this text is how within even say the history of right medical school curricula in the US there has been practically non-existent attention to the astounding, right, sexism, racism, and colonialism, let alone my goddess ableism, right, of the history of the medical profession within the settler colonial U.S.? Exactly, right? Grace underscoring, right? So what was Professor Washington's response to, right, this liberal white woman, Amy Goodman, saying, oh, these people of color that are anti-vax, are they going to ruin our response to coronavirus, <laughs> right? And this researcher and award-winning professor sharing, oh, were you talking about BIPOC that are logical people with a rational response? And were you just victim blaming with an erroneous framing of this entire issue by minimizing the reality that the healthcare system and the medical industrial complex within the settler colonial U.S. is un trustworthy, particularly for BIPOC communities. So can we just pause and just kind of take in how substantial that intervention is, right? And it's not just in this one case related to how, say, liberals and progressives talk about the issue of vaccines in a way that's just pathetically racist and sexist and colonial, right? But this applies to so many other topics that we could get into related to more broadly the way that if a source right, especially a leftist or a progressive source is still steeped in the kind of, right, white supremacy that's the bedrock of liberalism. Liberalism is a form of racism, right? Newsflash, liberalism and conservatism are both colonial projects, right? They have always been in the history of the settler colonial U.S., colonial projects. This is a nonpartisan critique, just like honesty is nonpartisan the last time I checked, right? So often you'll hear, right, these progressives hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about people, what is this tired phrase, quote, losing faith in our democratic institutions. And I would want to invite us to pause and to ask, what are the conditions of possibility that would make someone ever say something like that? And my take would be them being so oblivious or ignorant, say to some of the history that Professor Washington was just dropping for us, that they think, one, that democracy is a thing in the settler colonial U.S., which has consistently been a form of propaganda and to be continued around that later in the autumn. What an embarrassing misunderstanding on so many different counts, not just since the Citizens United Supreme Court case, right, since, oh, I don't know, right, genocide in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, I mean, this is just basic, right? Um, but also this notion of settler colonial institutions being trustworthy, right? How either privileged does someone have to be to actually believe that? Like bringing this like, I trust cops, I call them when I need help. Like that's literally the perspective, right, on institutions that's being perpetuated there. Or two, maybe someone's not just ignorant, right, or oblivious about this, maybe they're actually being malicious, right, or maybe they actually have some kinds of agenda, whether it's malicious or otherwise, or maybe they're just pandering, like they're trying to get theirs within the system. So they're right, conveniently sidestepping particular inconvenient analyses that are less likely to get them a Ford Foundation grant or something like that, right? So again, this isn't just about one isolated interview. You know, this is one of the reasons why I invite us to have not just a grain of salt, a bag of salt when we're listening to democracy now or any of these other very predictably right leftist or progressive sources. Um, so again, just to name exactly some of what I was expressing there for us to be on the lookout for, 
Eurocentric biases, right? First and foremost, again, liberalism came out of the Western European so-called enlightenment-based project that was the philosophical justification for colonialism. Liberalism is a colonial project. Liberalism is a form of racism. And I know that's easy for me to say as a former political science professor that teaches the history of political thought. I know that that's something that if people haven't studied carefully might sound surprising or might sound a little wild to hear me saying tons of rad resources that we could write study to delve into that research to understand for folks for whom that isn't obvious yet and so again with this in mind why on earth would we be wasting our time on these resources one, because a ton of these progressive, low-key partisan, like think the squad or justice Democrat sources have a whole lot more money and support for cultural production than decolonial and grassroots projects. So right, right now anyways, um, and even though that desperately needs to change. Um, so here are some, right, unfortunately annoying examples of what I mean by that kind of predictable bias, right? Being likely to hear people lamenting about a vulnerable so-called democracy, right? Um, which is just disgustingly invisibilizing. What do I mean by that? How many of us and our ancestors would you have to ignore to believe that kind of trash? Right? Like liberalism since the history of liberalism hasn't been centering and prioritizing the most privileged among us. And interestingly, in that way, liberalism actually has a lot in common with libertarianism and their broader kind of privilege problem, if you ask me. So I know some of y'all might have heard clueless libertarians fearing a police state. And that's clearly demonstrating ignorance about the function that cops virtually always perform in poor BIPOC communities. Either they're ignorant or they don't care. Uh, do you notice that through line? So both progressives and libertarians consistently ignore the needs and the demands of the most oppressed among us, unless, of course, they're objectifying us in the service of their own agendas. Here you could think about tokenism or pandering, like only coming around and pretending to give to fucks during election season, for example, or a fundraising cycle, or generally when they want something from us. So more broadly, something that I would also invite us to consider around that would be um, actually getting into another fantastic question that was shared with us. So I'll just pull this up real quick. Um, and if you're able to look at my screen, okay, you can see here, right, um, this question around thinking about critical media literacy and how so many great potential allies are distracted into spending all their energy worshiping, quote, legitimate, end quote, sources of info, could be governmental, perhaps it's corporate media, rather than reading between the lines for media and gleaning what's actually truth. For example, right, and referencing a local Louisville, Kentucky news article about a revelation in the case of the murder of Breonna Taylor, right, where so often people, right, aren't receiving that vital news coverage from the corporate media, especially related to cop cover-ups, so they're not able to see how, quote, criminal, end quote, law enforcement is actually being in this case, um, but instead maybe, right, solely focusing on arresting cops or something such as that. Um, thank you, by the way, Grace, for this question. And so around that, one of the things I'd like to really invite us to seriously consider is also being discerning when it comes to, right, what it is that we're hearing from governmental sources, from, right, sources that are typically considered legitimate, quote, end quote, whether it's the CDC, right, the FDA, whatever mainstream institution it might be. 
And again, based off of what I just shared, that it's a complete mythology, certainly for oppressed peoples, such as for BIPOC communities, to think that those institutions have ever served our needs. So then if we understand that, what then is our responsibility when it comes to being multi-directional in our discernment. And I would also like to really invite us to consider that this is also quite relevant when it comes to connecting with loved ones that might be pretty politically apathetic or checked out of the mainstream system, in part because they see how grossly popular partisanship is, where so often, again, people will just see politics almost like a form of spectator sports, right, where they've picked a team, and it's pretty unapologetically bad faith. Like, they'll critique things that the other team is doing. Again, liberals versus conservatives or vice versa. The Democrats versus Republicans or vice versa. And we could even see this in part, right, with some of the coverage of Tuesday's first right presidential debate within the settler colonial U.S., that's so predictably, right, liberals only critiqued what Trump did, right, conservatives only critiqued what Biden did. And for so many of us that do actually have a commitment to integrity or to truthfulness or to honesty, that side taking is a complete and utter turnoff. There's nothing attractive about people having those kinds of, right, forms of tunnel vision where they're not even pretending to hold their own side accountable, so to speak. A lot of people have more integrity than that and care about honesty more than that. So they're really going to be turned off if they see people pointing fingers in that kind of way that doesn't make space for them to be holding themselves accountable. I also want to share that this is especially relevant for those of us that do work in the realm of transformative justice or perform, uh, potentially even restorative justice also. So I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with this framework of community accountability, but within right community accountability processes, you don't only hold other people accountable. Ethics and integrity are relevant across the board, multidirectionally. And so I would like to really invite our attention in that direction here also. And I would also just want to share that um, another thing to consider here is the risk that coincides with doing real investigative journalism, right, as opposed to just the kind of pandering, right, to authority figures that so mainstream within the corporate media. So I know that some of y'all might be aware that yesterday, October 3rd, 2020, was the two-year anniversary of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi being murdered. And so it's important for me to bring that in let alone also the case of, right, the persistence attacks on Edward Snowden as well that are being, right, amplified in this moment. For us to really talk about the consequences for people that are really speaking truth about power, not to power, right? I appreciate that intervention from Chris Hedges. It's not talking about, right, speaking truth to power. Power knows about power, right? Or authority figures more specifically are well aware of their own sketchiness quite often. But us within our communities speaking truth about power, right? That's a form of risk taking that so often, right, is accompanied by substantial consequences. So I also want to just name that real investigative journalists get assassinated on a regular basis all over the world. It's not about, right, in this cult of celebrity, right, or in this horrifyingly capitalist influencer culture, people like Rachel Maddow that are millionaires, right, that are somehow pretending to be journalists and not just to be repeating talking points, right, as the kind of lapdogs that they are, so to speak, right, of these, right, corporate and political authority figures. And I bring this up also because 
I don't know about y'all, but I definitely hear people quite often, right, that are kind of checked out or politically apathetic or negligent, potentially saying things like these blanket generalizations. For example, like, oh, the media is corrupt. The news is full of liars. It's all a system. And that's actually inaccurate because you see how, what does that kind of generalization do? It actually invisibilizes people in that field with integrity, and it actually invisibilizes their work. Like, what was Jamal Khashoggi saying about the Saudi Arabian regime that got him assassinated, right? It would be, right, invisibilizing his legacy and that of so many others, whether it's whistleblowers like Edward Snowden or otherwise, to just completely throw out any interest, right, in attempting to find legitimate sources or in actual engagement. Um, and that can almost veer into something we're going to talk about later this autumn, right, that is cynicism, almost getting a little jaded by how, let's be real disgusting, so much of the mainstream culture is that then it can almost not make room to honor that, right, some people are throwing down with substantial risk to be decent human beings in this moment. And if you ask me, it's really important that we take, right, recognizing them and one another seriously. Uh, and so just wanting to, right, bring that piece in also. I'm curious to get a sense of, based off of everything that we have been getting into here, some of the other questions that y'all might be sitting with in the moment. So if you would like to share any more based off of some of what we have been getting into just now, please do feel free to do so. And I would also want to, right, while I'm giving y'all a moment to get into that, right, just to share um, another sort of idea related to integrating some of what we have been getting into. Um, it's also really common for people to talk about, right, the corporate media by misnaming it the mainstream media. And to me, I really just want to invite our, right, intentionality around that languaging and encouragement for us to be a little bit more specific, for us to be a little bit more accurate in our languaging. So a lot of people want to be mainstream. And so that kind of bias, right, could encourage some people towards something that gets called the mainstream media. But the thing is, corporatism isn't actually mainstream, and it arguably shouldn't be, especially for those of us that take anti-fascism seriously, like this historical moment absolutely warrants. Uh, and so... I really want to encourage us to also be just a little bit more intentional with our language. If we're talking about the corporate media, like for example, ABC, NPR, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, to call it the corporate media, to not call it the mainstream media. Because again, if we call it the mainstream media, that might in part, right, one is inaccurate, but then two, it could lead people to identifying with it a little bit more than is actually appropriate or warranted. Uh, and I also just want to give a huge shout out, right, to so many media studies scholars that have shared so much of the analysis that I'm rehashing in this short period for y'all today. So hopefully if you're able to check out, for example, some of the documentaries that are put out by the MEF, the Media Education Foundation, you'll get connected with a whole lot of those scholars and media activists. And again, when you get into some of their materials, please do consider that heads up I shared with y'all earlier that there's going to be a lot of very predictable progressive hand-wringing about threats to, quote, our democracy, end quote, um, that are, again, patently colonial, like so much of the progressive movement in the settler colonial U.S. is patently colonial. And again, racist in the sense that I mentioned earlier, that it's invisibilizing so many of our stories and that of our ancestors to lie by calling the U.S. a democracy. Um, so, of course, right, again, they're not centering decolonization 
organization. And in that way, they're also not being feminist. And that's super important for us to take seriously. And again, they also have done a substantial amount of work, right, putting out on the table some of these concerns that do actually really merit our attention, if you ask me. Uh, I'd also just want to share, right, as a little heads up, right, especially, right, if you're not principally looking at, say, activist live streams, right, or coverage from local grassroots organizations, just to keep in mind that independent sources will also have their biases, right? It might just not be that they're getting censored by corporations that are buying advertisements to fund their projects. Uh, and so, again, on that front, it's not to say that all independent media sources are necessarily better by any stretch of the imagination than corporate media. It's just when it comes to following the money, collecting those receipts, and right, discouraging the likelihood of our mind having even more corporate talking points implanted in it than is already the case, right? That's where independent media can be really beneficial. But still, I mean, we could look to, for instance, there are, right, some well known folks, whether it's like Brian Rose of London Real that's allegedly independent financially, but he has got, right, folks like these sort of anti-Semitic, right, talking heads like David Icke, right, and other people on his show. So it's important for me to, right, bring in an example like that to show some evidence that independent sources can still be sketchy. Um, so again, not to just create some sort of convenient, right, binary where it's like, oh, I'm into things that are independent, and then I'm not discerning because they're independent, right? Someone can be independent and still be anti-Semitic, right? Can still say terrible things like, I think Black Lives Matter is just some kind of, right, Russian propaganda or the kinds of things that you see in some of those sources. Um, or similarly, unfortunately, right, the Intercepts podcast systems update with Glenn Greenwald is an example of someone that you know, it's not corporate media. And at the same time, right, Glenn Greenwald has unfortunately been sharing some just very predictably progressive perspectives that are just so patently rooted in white supremacy, right? Centering liberalism, right, in a way that I'm going to use this term intentionally here, is irrationally, right, sort of gullible in having faith in governmental institutions and mainstream institutions in a way that some of us don't have the privilege to buy into, right, or know our history and understand current affairs too well to be able to be naive like that around, right? Uh, and so... As we're beginning to wrap up, I would just want to share a few sort of closing ideas. As we are finishing up this video right now, I encourage you to pause for at least a moment, especially instead of immediately continuing to scroll after watching. This is important so that you can have the space to integrate what we just got into together. You might have heard my words and found them sensible, but what does that mean for you in your life then? If you understood some of what I just shared and want to take it seriously, does that mean that anything might need to change that you have influence over, for example? Please remember that not everyone is going to understand the journey that you're on right now. So, for example, if some of y'all have watched or write this show, The Social Dilemma, that was just put out by Netflix, that's a very, right, typical example of a liberal perspective of hand-wringing about, right, some people becoming more critical of mainstream sources and consistent with so much of what I shared earlier, right, liberal producers of that documentary perceiving that as problematic, which again, if we're critically thinking about their partisan bias, we can anticipate from a mile away, of course they would perceive that as a problem, and of course they wouldn't have a decolonial understanding of how astoundingly beneficial it is for more of our folks to have, right, some judicious skepticism about corporate media sources. And again, if people don't have any decolonial
colonial or feminist framework, we can anticipate from a mile away that they would just perpetuate that predictably liberal hand-wringing, again, if they are oblivious enough to actually have right belief in those oppressive and unjust institutions. So they're trying to essentially bully all of the rest of us into them, and they don't have right the analysis to be able to recognize healthy skepticism that's providing some robust pushback. Uh, and so, of course, that kind of liberalism and other mediocre forms of oppression are super popular. And I invite us to remember what we know in the face of those kinds of echo chambers. And so I'd like to encourage y'all to, again, take that moment as we are parting ways right now. Maybe you want to look up some of the materials that I shared. I'd sincerely encourage you to do so. And please feel free to let us know in the comments what you found most evocative. Thank you all for listening. And I absolutely hope to see you next week for some more weaving and seeding. Thank you all. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours. Freedom is ours.